Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers podcast, we're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 9. We're going to be starting in verse 19, and we're going to be talking about Saul preaching in Damascus and then in Jerusalem. Leslie, would you open us with a word of prayer, please? Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we have together, and bless Mark as he preaches here and uh, teaches. We ask that as you present the word and we hear the truth, that we respond accordingly And if we need to change, help us to change so that we may embrace your truth and the the way, the truth, and the life. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Leslie. Good evening, Mark. Howdy. It's good to be back with everyone. We've been having an interesting time, at least I have, uh, going through the book of Acts from the viewpoint of the restoration of Israel. And we've had some signs at some of our vigils that say the church is Israel. A a friend of many of us named Charles Provan uh, wrote a book, The Church is Israel Now. And this is, uh, it's true, but it's it's a bit of an oversimplification. It's not like there was Israel and then God threw away Israel and then said, oh, here's the church, now the church will be Israel. This is the fulfillment of many, many promises during the time of Old Covenant Israel through the Hebrew prophets for Israel to be restored and transformed in their last days. It would be a time of judgment and a time of deliverance through transformation. And Gentiles, people who are not Judean by nationality or Israelite by nationality, we have been allowed to be brought in to the transformed Israel. So it's a little bit different nuance than the church is Israel now, and it's really that the Gentiles are part of Israel now, spiritual Israel. Israel has been transformed into a spiritual nation from a a physical nation guided by uh, procreation and genealogy. Now it is a nation of faith that is made up of people of all nations and backgrounds. So this is what we're seeing, and we are right to the cusp of this great event of the uh, Gentiles being brought into the restored uh, Israel. This is in accordance with 
Christ's plan, which he announced way back in Acts chapter 1, when he told his disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. We now, with the conversion of, of Saul in Acts 9, we are on the beginning of that last phase of the plan. And as we have pointed out almost weekly, we do not see any evidence of the plan being changed, of any excuses being given for the first plan failing and a substitute plan being unveiled. We see uh, Christ confidently stating that all has been fulfilled in the way it was uh, promised through the prophets, and it's all uh, rolling out just as anticipated. And so we're now into the nitty-gritty details of the uh, of switching from the first three phases of the plan into the final phase of the plan here. And Saul was a very unique person. We talked about a lot last week. He had unique uh, attributes, and uh, having been born in a free Roman city up in Cilicia, he had Roman citizenship, he had wealth, he had great learning in Greek culture, and then he was sent to Jerusalem as a boy and had intense studies under Gamaliel, one of the finest uh, of the Pharisaic uh, rabbis of all time. So he was one of the most knowledgeable men alive in regards to the law of Moses as well. Uh, fluent in multiple languages, especially appointed from before his birth to be a special ambassador of Jesus Christ to carry out the final phase of this plan. So he had gone up under the old high priest uh, to Damascus in Syria to uh, bind all of those of the way and bring them back to Jerusalem, those who had fled after Stephen's uh, execution. And on the road, another high priest appears to him, Jesus Christ, and Saul switches allegiances to a new high priest. And that's where we will pick up this evening here in the middle of verse 19. Saul stayed some time with the disciples in Damascus and soon began to proclaim in the synagogues that Jesus was the Son of God. Any who heard it were greatly taken aback. They kept saying, Isn't this the man who worked such havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked this name? Did he not come here purposely to apprehend such people and bring them before the chief priests? Saul, for his part, grew steadily more powerful and reduced the Jewish community of Damascus to silence with his proofs that this Jesus was the Messiah. Great. Thank you, Leslie. Now, it's, it's rather amazing to me that Saul began without delay to preach Jesus in the synagogues. He had been sent up to uh, Damascus, north of uh, Judea and Galilee, up there to make contact with the Judean community, the center of which would be the synagogues of Damascus. And uh, he followed through and did go to these, but not with the message that they were expecting. He instead had completely reversed himself and, and immediately began to teach that Jesus is the Son of God. 
And it says here that his power was the more strengthened, uh, and some translations say in the word, and he was able to confound the Judeans of Damascus. There is no doubt in my mind that he was using the Hebrew scriptures, and this was the source of his power. His knowledge inculcated uh, by Gamaliel from his youth and you know, perhaps from his parents and uh, family and his synagogue in, in Tarsus. This gave him a commanding knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures, and this is what he uses over and over again, as we'll see as we go through the book of Acts. The remainder of the book of Acts is going to be uh, focusing on Saul's activities, but he uses the Hebrew Scriptures with phenomenal power to prove that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. This harkens back to the end of Luke and then the beginning of Acts where the confused and mourning disciples are taken under Jesus' wing after his resurrection and he shows to them how all the scriptures pointed towards the events of those days and the restoration of Israel, specifically discussed there in Acts chapter 1. So this is the type of exposition that Saul would have been giving immediately in the synagogues of Damascus, going to the prophets, going to Deuteronomy 18, and other uh, passages in the Hebrew Scriptures that promised a prophet, a Messiah, a king in the line of David, all to come in the last days of Old Covenant Israel. The people that heard this were absolutely amazed, and they you know, says, "Well, he's completely, you know, flipped. He's gone 180 degrees." Hard any comments there in the studio? No, I guess not. All right. Well, let's read uh, verses 23 through 25, please. After quite some time had passed, certain Jews conspired to kill Saul. But their plot came to his attention. They went so far as to keep close watch on the city gates day and night in an attempt to do away with him. Some of his disciples, therefore, took him along the wall one night and lowered him to the ground using ropes and a hamper. All right, thank you. Now, what uh, Luke is leaving out here is that apparently... Not too long after Saul changed and uh, taught there in Damascus, he went down to Arabia and spent some time down there. And uh, he apparently was not just in meditation or looking for the site of Mount Sinai, although it may still have been well marked in those days. We've recently found the traces of, uh, of a marker from Solomon's time showing where the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and a big flat area on both sides. It's the only area of the Red Sea where you have a huge wide flat space on both sides with a shallow area of water. It's kind of a land bridge, barely submerged, connecting the two, and there's all kinds of chariot wheels and axles encrusted with coral all over the land bridge. Wow. 
the Egyptian government, the Saudi Arabian government, and certainly the Israeli government are not excited about people finding out about this, and they don't allow anyone to go down there. But there was an American who uh, devoted all of his money and, and vacation time to going over there. He and his son got in there and got some uh, underwater film of it and all that. They they almost made it back out, but were arrested uh, shortly before crossing the border into Jordan, and they had uh, a lot of their stuff confiscated. But but they did. There are some films of it that have uh, have gotten out, and it's it's truly amazing. So anyway, we're it's very convincing that Saudi Arabia was the site of Mount Sinai, not the site in Sinai Peninsula that is you know, claimed by uh, Queen Elaine and the Greek Orthodox Church and a few others. But Paul probably wasn't down there looking for this site. He was probably going to the Judean community uh, of Saudi Arabia. At the time, the administrative authorities were known as the Nabataean Kingdom. This is the same society that built uh, Petra in present-day Jordan that was featured in the Indiana Jones movie about the, uh, I think it's one of the last crusade, oh. the the beautiful um, upper room and the and the graves dug carved into the side of the red sandstone cliffs. It's absolutely an amazing sight. It's a real treasure. It was lost for five or six hundred years, and it's been basically protected since it was rediscovered from uh, vandalism and destruction. It's it's truly, truly amazing. I was fortunate enough to, to go there uh, in 2009 for a half day. <laughs> you could spend three days there easily because the whole first century city is basically preserved. But it was a great uh, caravan trading center. And this is, uh, you know, it comes right almost to the borders of Judea uh, there in the present-day country of Jordan, not far at all. So... This doesn't mean that he necessarily went to Riyadh, the present modern-day capital of Saudi Arabia. The Nabataean kingdom in those days went all the way almost to the borders of uh, Judea, and he could have been in that area of the of the country on the western side rather than over on the eastern side where all the uh, political centers are today. But he was apparently causing trouble down there too because when he writes his letter to the Galatians, it says that he, in uh, Galatians 1, verse 17, he is stating how that he didn't go immediately to Jerusalem to confer with the apostles, but he went down into Arabia and then went back to Damascus before he went up to Jerusalem after three years. So we basically uh, know from his Galatian letter that it was three years from the time everything changed for him until the time that he actually got back to Jerusalem. He probably thought he was only going to be gone two or three days or two or three weeks, and instead he was gone for three years. Also, he makes an account of of this in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He's been recapping some of his uh, various trials in this letter to the Corinthian Uh, Christians, and there he said, In Damascus, the governor under Aretas the king kept the city of the Damascenes of the garrison and was desirous to arrest me. Through a window in a basket was I let down by the wall and escaped his hands. So this 
literally this is the ethnarch under Aretas the king. Now, Damascus wasn't ruled by Aretas. Aretas was the king of the Nabataeans or of Arabia. And so they had their own ethnic community in Damascus, just like the Judeans had their own ethnic community in Damascus. Again, again Damascus was what the oldest city in the world. It was a great city. It was the capital of uh, Roman province and very important. So all of these surrounding nations would have had a, a strong representation there. And the ethnarch was the representative of the Arabian king Aretas there for the Arabian community in Damascus. And so they were the ones who were trying to actually arrest Paul. So Paul had gotten himself in trouble down somewhere south in Arabia. And he probably didn't have a whole lot of friends outside of the Christians in Damascus either. Uh, the Judean community was looking for him. The Nabataean community was looking for him. And so that's a little bit of extra background here to these uh, three verses. Yeah, well, in Luke here mentions the Judeans trying to kill him. And then in the Corinthian letter, he talks about the Arabians trying to arrest him. So, you know, he had multiple enemies uh, to choose from when he's uh, telling these accounts. <laughs> Remember, he had been told that he would suffer. Uh, it wasn't, oh, he can choose to suffer. God said, I'm going to show him all that he must suffer for the sake of my name, back in verse 16. <laughs> so it began, it began uh, right away. All right, any, any thoughts or questions there? Um, that would be kind of scary, perhaps, except uh, maybe Saul, to find out... <clears throat> In the future, you can expect to be tortured or killed. Well, but it also shows how real and genuine his conversion was by doing this. I mean, he he had to certainly overcome that idea that, you know, why did he make this change and so forth. So he, I think, proved himself pretty quickly. I, yeah, no fear. The zeal that he had... Uh, had from his youth for the law, he transferred immediately to mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, who he recognized as the fulfillment of that law that he so revered. So it apparently wasn't, you know, so hard for him. And he, he bore his his punishment uh, quite well. When you read his letters, he, he basically says, I deserved it. I deserve to die. So this, this suffering that I'm going through is... Uh, is nothing in comparison to what I really deserve for all the damage I did to the Lord's people. And that takes a real individual that can see that he has been deceived uh, to the point of even persecuting people and then to embrace the truth. I'm reminded uh, on our website, I post a, a short little video. It was uh, a video of uh, some young students from Israel that watched a movie called Five Broken Cameras. And it was done by a Palestinian uh, man uh, who literally had five of his cameras broken in peaceful demonstrations trying to keep their land. And, of course, most of the world has, in the U.S. anyway, and many Christians, we talk about this all the time, have turned their backs on what's going on there because of this belief that the modern state of Israel 
is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. But this movie has actually been shown in a few places in Israel, theaters, even on some documentary channels. But the Ministry of Education has banned it from schools. Well, some uh, Israeli uh, Jewish guy got together a group, showed them this video, and it's about these peaceful demonstrations uh, because the settlers were taking their land uh, away from them. And it was really uh, amazing. These young Israeli Jews were saying, we didn't know this. We don't agree with you know what our our, our government is doing. You know, it was, it was an eye-opening thing. So here, Paul was persecuting people, and uh, when he saw the truth, that of course, like you said, he tra- his zeal got transferred. So I think that's what more people need to do is to look at these kinds of issues and see if what they believe is really true or when they find out the truth just like these young students you know what can we do well maybe it's an eye-opening if more people saw that the young people we know that's where changes come from and paul i don't know how old do you have any idea how old paul was at this time Mm -hmm. he had to be an an adult Mm -hmm. in his 30s maybe or yeah, he would have to be over 30. I don't think a, a Judean male was really considered grown until they were 30. That was when the priests mm-hmm. could start serving in the temple was once they turned 30. So mm-hmm. I, would, I would think he's probably in his uh, early 30s at this time, at least. You know, very good. Well, let's read uh, verses 26 through 30. When he arrived back in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples there, but it turned out that they were all afraid of him. They even refused to believe that he was a disciple. Then Barnabas took him charge and introduced him to the apostles. He explained to them how on his journey Saul had seen the Lord, who had conversed with him, and how Saul had been speaking out fearlessly in the name of Jesus at Damascus. Saul stayed on with them, moving freely about Jerusalem and expressing himself quite openly in the name of the Lord. He even addressed the Greek-speaking Jews and debated with them. They, for their part, responded by trying to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, some of them took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. All right, very good. So uh, after this three-year hiatus where he's already exercised his amazing power to use the scriptures to prove Jesus, he goes back to Jerusalem and, of course, would try to uh, meet up with the family of God in that place, the new family, the spiritual Israel that's, that's being formed there. And we can understand the uh, reticence they might have to open their doors to their secret home meetings and invite him in. It would uh, be too only too obvious that someone from the other side might try to plant an agent provocateur in their midst to try to uh, to expose them. Although apparently, since Saul had been gone for three years, things had really quieted out a lot. So we can see that he was really uh, the driving force of that persecution that came up over Stephen. 
because it really calmed down once he was out of the way. Barnabas shows up here, and we don't know exactly how he gained his knowledge. We're not told, but he might have been up in Damascus, or he might have had a good friend who was in Damascus, but he had first or second-hand knowledge of the events that had occurred up there, enough to corroborate Saul's story and persuade the apostles to accept an audience with him. And so they, at least, they apparently don't get too chummy. Uh, Paul writes over there in the Galatian letter that, you know, he didn't, he did not uh, get his idea of the gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem. He he did go up there, but he basically received enough directly from Jesus Christ that he was able to put that together with what he already knew of the Hebrew Scriptures and could commandingly teach Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, you know that way he didn't have to have, be spoon fed uh, by the apostles. And that's, he has a reason for going into that, both in the Galatian letter and in the Second Corinthian letter, uh, which we'll defer until we study those, uh, those letters again. But what we do see here is that he, he, he did at least get acquainted with them and that he immediately took up this same troublemaking tendency that he had demonstrated or displayed in Damascus and down in Arabia, and he is now going to do it again in Jerusalem and probably to this same synagogue where Stephen got into trouble, the the synagogue of the freedmen. These were Judeans who had been servants or the sons of servants in Rome or in important cities throughout the empire who had repatriated themselves to Jerusalem and they had their own synagogue and they spoke Greek rather than Aramaic like the native-born Judeans. Saul, of course, would have spoke both, but he he might have felt more comfortable with this group of Judeans since he himself was raised in a Greek city. And so he goes in and tries to pick up right where Stephen left off and uh, what uh, what's their response to his uh, sayings there in verse 29? Well, skepticism, uh, I guess would be the best way to say it. Well, that's a mild way to put it. <laughs> Vehement skepticism, yeah. They were intimidated. Violent skepticism, and they were, yeah, they were trying to kill him. <laughs> they were about yeah. to kill him. They wanted to do away with him uh, in the literal version there because of what he had to say. Gosh, that sounds like uh, people today. They forgot what Jesus uh, commanded of them to love their neighbor as themselves, even their enemy. We, we seem to have that same scenario played over and over uh, by people professing to be Christians today. Yep. Some things don't change. <laughs> that's why we need a savior that's right because we all kind of fall short so yeah well these guys they, they weren't interested in Saul's message or anything good about Jesus of Nazareth so the brethren uh, apparently intervened they didn't really want Saul to go the way of Stephen uh, just yet anyway so they 
forcibly, if necessary, <laughs> grabbed him and took him out of town down to Caesarea, which was down on the Mediterranean coast. This is the great city built by Herod where there was no harbor. Herod built one of the most magnificent artificial harbors that had been seen in the world up to that time. And uh, they put him on a ship, presumably there going north, which Tarsus, I think, is landlocked, but uh, they could get him in the vicinity, and he went back home. And now that kind of brings us to the end of Paul for just a little bit. We get to see how the others fire things up a bit with this last phase of the plan to spread the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth here, uh, beginning uh, right now. Uh, Verse 31 kind of stands alone. Let's go ahead and read it. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, the church was at peace. It was being built up and was making steady progress in the fear of the Lord. At the same time, it enjoyed the increased consolation of the Holy Spirit. All right, so this is the body. This is the spiritually transformed Israel born of water and blood at the cross and the first three phases of the plan that was mentioned to us back in Acts chapter 1 here, Judea or Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, uh, phrased a little differently here, Judea, Galilee and Samaria. But uh, the gains are consolidated and they're continuing to grow, to be edified, to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of God's Spirit, and they are continuing to grow. So the first three phases of the plan are firmly in place and doing well. Luke gives us that summary here before we jump into this next phase, which we have a few of the the acts of Peter here before he meets up with an interesting man named Cornelius. So the first story is here in verses 32 through 35. Let's go ahead and read that if we could. Once when Peter was making numerous journeys, he went, among other places, to God's holy people living in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic, who had been bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ cures you? Get up and make your bed. The man got up at once. All the inhabitants of Lydda and Sharon, upon seeing him, were converted to the Lord. All right, so we get the idea again that because of the uh, peacefulness, the lack of the pressure coming from the Judean leadership, Peter is able to make kind of a leisurely tour around Judea possibly Galilee, to visit the church that had scattered out of Jerusalem after Stephen's death. And I think this is down to the south, or at least to the west, if not to the southwest of Jerusalem. This would be uh, in the areas where the Philistines had uh, lived in times past. They were utterly wiped out as a civilization by the Babylonians. But uh, now Judeans apparently live there. 
I'm looking it up here on a map. It's still there today by the same name. Yeah, it's a little ways in from the coast. Anyway, I'm sorry distracted by that. So these are some of the Christians, again, probably scattered from Jerusalem, and one of them had been paralyzed uh, for eight years. So Peter sees no need for that to uh, be the case for much longer, so he instantaneously uh, heals him and tells him to get up and make your bed, or some translators say, get up and make yourself something to eat. Whichever one is accurate, I mean, he had, to, he had to get up and do something with himself. Christ doesn't heal us spiritually for us to uh, retire. There is work to be done, and we talk about some of that on some of these broadcasts from time to time. But anyway, Aeneas, Aeneas had to get up and go to work because he was healed. And so this, this uh, miraculous healing got the notice of all the local area residents and uh, many of them turned to Jesus Christ as a result of this, uh, of this great miracle. Then we have another little story here, verses 36 through 43. Let's go ahead and read that, please. Now in Joppa, there was a certain woman convert named Tabitha, in Greek, Dorcas, meaning a gazelle. Her life was marked by constant good deeds and acts of charity. At about that time, she fell ill and died. They washed her body and laid it out in an upstairs room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples who had heard that Peter was there sent two men to him with the urgent request, Please come over to us without delay. Peter set out with them as they asked. Upon his arrival, they took him upstairs to the room. All the widows came to him in tears and showed him the various garments Dorcas had made when she was still with him. Peter first made everyone go outside. Then he knelt down and prayed. Turning to the dead body, he said, Tabitha, stand up. She opened her eyes, then looked at Peter and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her to her feet. The next thing he did was to call in those who were believers and the widows to show them that she was alive. This became known all over Joppa. Because of it, many came to believe in the Lord. Thus it happened that Peter stayed on in Joppa for a considerable time at the house of Simon, a tanner of leather. All right, great. So Joppa lie ahead of uh, the path Peter was going, presumably. It was the only real seaport in ancient Israel until Herod built Caesarea further north up the coast. So Joppa was kind of the uh, the traditional historical port. I think it's the port from where... Uh, Jonah set sail to try to get away from God and not have to go over to Nineveh, if I remember correctly. So it had been around a long time. I think it's interesting that these two acts of healing are both uh, very specifically amongst the community of the saints in these places. Um, 
a lot of churches have gotten focused on ministering to the poor of the world, and certainly as Christians we are supposed to do that, but as a collective body of believers, our first responsibility is to each other. As Christ told the disciples in the upper room shortly before his arrest and execution, said, by this, the world will know you are my disciples and that you love one another. And we'll see later that Paul, when Judea falls under famine, he doesn't raise money up in Greece and Italy and Asia Minor to alleviate all of the starvation down in Judea. He raises the money amongst the Gentile believers for the specific relief of the Judean believers. They are taking care of their own first. By doing this, they are fulfilling Christ's words in John that the world will know that you are my disciples because you love one another so much. And so this is exactly what we see happening here with the healing of Aeneas and Lydda and now with this resurrection of Tabitha in Joppa. The community of believers in that place obviously were a very tight-knit group like family, as they should have been, and they are very upset that uh, they've lost Tabitha. She had spent all of her time doing good things, and she obviously they, they could lay out all of these garments that she had made for the other believers. She, again, had focused her efforts on the community of Christ first and not just on the world at random or in general. They sent somebody over to Lydda to get uh, Peter uh, right away, and Peter went up and got with the, the two men. We usually see a deputation of two in the book of Acts, as we saw it uh, from time to time in the Gospels. Peter went with them, and they, uh, they went into an upper room. And again, an upper room in the first century in Palestine was a, a dining area, really, that was above the uh, uh, family burial plot. If they had a burial cave below, well, then they went the prescribed distance to separate themselves from the dead bodies, and they used that for feasting on all of their feast days so they would be in the presence of their uh, departed ancestors. And so this is uh, used as a preparation room uh, for the funeral ceremonies and everything uh, in all likelihood before the body is interred uh, down below. And they're obviously very upset. They had all this stuff laid out that uh, Tabitha had made when she was there with them. So Peter sends everyone out as he had seen Jesus do when he resurrected the young girl up in uh, Galilee and tells her to uh, sit up. So she opens her eyes, looks at Peter, and she sits up. So he then calls in the, uh, the family and presented her alive to them. And I'm, I use that in the broader sense of the family of believers. And, of course, this this great action, I mean, the, their their passionate love for this woman made them send for Peter uh, right away. And so he came down there and uh, 
this great miracle occurred, which became known throughout the area. And just like at Lydda, many believed on the Lord as a result of this great act of uh, Peter exercising the power of God's Spirit uh, through him. Mm -hmm. And so Peter stays there with uh, Simon the Tanner. Simon probably lived outside of town. (laughs) His his trade would have caused him to remain ceremonially unclean far more than most Judean males. Uh, would, he was probably stained from it, too. Yeah, would generally like to. He may have used salt water in his process, so he might have been uh, close to the sea. Some scholars have commented Peter might have been homesick for his home up at Bethsaida on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, and so he pr- might have had an ocean view room uh, here in Simon's house, but we don't know that for sure, but it's kind of interesting to speculate on why Peter stayed there for some time. Can you imagine uh, introducing the two of them? Hello, this is uh, Peter and Simon, Simon Peter. Yeah, well, (laughs) that would be a good skit for Saturday Night Live, I suppose. Well, very good. Well, this uh, this is a good chance for us to break here. As we roll into 10, we'll see how Peter being there will be not just coincidentally fortuitous, but probably providentially intended to be the stepping stone for the uh, carrying out of the fourth part of Jesus' plan here as Peter will meet with a man named Cornelius north of Joppa at Caesarea. So hopefully we'll be able to look at that. I think you'll find it quite interesting next time we get together. Thank you. Thank you, Mark, and thanks for your input, Leslie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast, and please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.